Well, hey, here we are with yet another Simon Mayo's Books of the Year. I'm Simon Mayo. He's Matt Williams. Yes, I am. And uh, we're churning them out, aren't we? <laughs> we're doing very well. I mean, to run up to Christmas, it might go a little, not quite as hectic after Christmas. Yeah, so you think. might want to space us out, really. Yeah. I mean, how much enjoyment can can we well, be providing? Well, I don't think, I, I think one can overdo it. And, and as we always do at Christmas, we're fitting in with everything here. So uh, this uh, podcast is brought to you in association with our uh, friends, colleagues and uh, overlords yeah. at WH Smith. <laughs> but here's the thing. Apparently, I'm going to actually try this. Yeah. If you go to any WH Smith and say Mayo at the <laughs> checkout, you get an extra 10% off Michael Parkinson's book. And it'll be speaking to Michael Parkinson in just a moment on top of the existing discount. So often, you know, leading hardbacks have got like 20, 30% off anyway. Okay. So if you get that book and you go to the, I mean, this is going to be super embarrassing. So I can only apologize. But anyway, so what you do is you queue up. And you, when you get to the, till you say mayo, you have to say mayo, right? That's it's like a password. Yeah, it is. And what would the, what do we think the sales assistant will do when you say mayo? Say so you what? <laughs> Call security. <laughs> Apparently, there's a button on the till that just gives you. An there's error. a button on the till. Yes. There's a button, so it's like what replace the decimal point or something. We can't put that because there's now a mayo button there. A mayo button. Wow. Mayo, 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 mayo. <laughs> Yes, yes. I mean, that's brilliant. Everyone I'm definitely doing this. But don't, yeah. I mean, you can tell everyone to download the podcast, but don't tell other people in the queue just to say Mayo, because then they'll... WH <laughs> Smith's out of business. Yeah, and yeah. obviously there are terms and conditions, store prices may vary. This is only valid uh, in December. Oh, right, so you need to get on your courses right now, don't you? You're yes. not entitled to a free fruit and nut bar or salt and vinegar crisps. You know, do they sell crisps? Or a copy of Health and Efficiency. <laughs> no, sir. Is that no. still in print? I have no idea. <laughs> I love this. Can't I'm definitely any of those. So, so a mayo. 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 <laughs> I'm going to try that. I'm going to go to Waitrose, see if they do it as well. I was assured I would be able to get money off my health and efficiency if I said mayo. <laughs> Oh, this is superb. Anyway, but try it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's 10% off, you know, a couple of quid. That's all right, isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, just, we would really like to know if if that whole thing works. It just seems, it does seem exactly like a spy password. Yeah, yeah. If you, so if you do that, so if you want the Michael Parkinson book, you hear the conversation in just a moment, and it is a fascinating memoir. You then go to Smith's, you buy it, you say Mayo at the checker. If that works, uh, email us. Books yeah. of the year at yahoo.com. You can tweet us instantly, obviously, yes. maybe with a photograph yes. of you at the till <laughs> with a happy till person yeah. saying mayo, and you can tweet that to uh, Books of the Year. Yeah, Books brilliant. Of the year. We'd love to see a picture of the, of the button as well. That would be superb. I yes. love that. That'd be nice. Yeah. Uh, Debbie Massey in Devon. Simon and Matt just wanted to suggest slash recommend to your listeners re-listening to a podcast once you have read the book. Who knew, huh? I listened to Heather Morris... Uh, interview was so enthralled about her story that I bought The Tattooist of Auschwitz and read it last week on a trip abroad. Now, thanks to modern science, I've gone back and listened again to your interview with her and appreciated it on a whole another level. Really enjoy listening to all the stories on your podcast. Well done, says Debbie Massey. Well, um, we don't insist that everyone listens twice to our podcast, but if you could subscribe twice to our podcast... Subscribe yes, everywhere. That, that would really help us out. Now, we talk, obviously, to um, uh, Sir Michael about sports books, um, and so we asked you on Twitter for uh, recommendations of, of sport biographies. Uh, Rhino Rob says, As a boy, I loved reading and rereading Sir Garfield Sober's book of his most memorable innings. Such a likeable man with a humility that belied his 
brilliant. Sadly, I'm too young to have watched him live. But Parky's a big fan. Thanks for the podcast. Tinkity tonk. Uh, indeed. And hello, Dando Shaft, um, also known as Lenny. Uh, he says, a lot of hard yakka by Simon yes, Hughes. Yes, that won Sports Book of the Year as well. That's Isn't a very, nice. very good book. Um, John Scannell says, Jonathan Wilson's Brian Clough biography, Nobody Ever Says Thank You, is the best football book I've ever read. Jonathan Wilson, big fan of his. Yeah. Do you remember that book, All Played Out? Oh, what Which was a an book. account of yes. the 1990 World Cup. 1990 World Cup. It is, uh, when, when you ask a lot of football fans for their favourite football book. That's the one, Pete Davis's book. It is the template for how to write a book about a major sporting event. It had, he had unbelievable access. You'll never get that access again. Kevin Conroy. Uh, I've had bad record with sports books. Lance Armstrong, Michelle Smith, both done for drugs. The only thing that could be worse would be an Oscar Pistorius prison diary. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. okay. Uh, moving I mean, on, Kevin. There are it, other books. Yeah, it is worth saying. Lance Armstrong book, despite what he later admitted to, that is a. Re- it's not about the bike. Is a great book. It's just a really well written book. Uh, Barry Wilson uh, suggests "Opening Up" by Michael Atherton. Roger Ellis's suggestions: Brian Moore's "Beware of the Dog." And Philip Church says Bob Wilson's story is a brilliant read. So many firsts for that man. Lots of self-deprecating humour, as he'd expect from someone so unassuming. But the chapters about the loss of his daughter tore me apart. Searingly, achingly honest. And uh, Ben, the producer of this podcast... Oh, yes. ...not content with just producing the podcast, wants to chip in. Oh, really? He's got something to say as well, has he? He says, Mike Tyson, Undisputed Truth is an incredible book which details his self-destruction, all his drug use, use of prostitutes and criminal activity, plus there's a bit of boxing. It's almost as if Ben was just wanting to hijack this portion of the show to be able to get his own views. I wonder if this is going to be a regular... I mean, can you go Can you go to WH Smith and say, Ben the producer, does that work for anyone? No, it doesn't. There's no button on there, Till, with that it on. doesn't. I don't think so. Anyway. I can't wait to see if this button thing works. It's so good. Do you think we should go down to Smith's around yeah. the corner from here? Yeah, and just say mayo. mayo and just see what happens. Mayo. Uh, okay, so the, the reason that we are here gathered is to talk to Michael Parkinson. Hello, Sir Michael. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you, sir. Yeah, it's it's very nice to see you, uh, Matt. Do you want to describe the cover of this book, please? Okay, um, so we have a mainly white cover, uh, but uh, obviously a picture on the front, uh, dominates the bottom half of the book of um, Sir Michael uh, with George Best next to him, and looks like they are either about to or have just played a game of cricket. Playing cricket, yeah. playing cricket, I mean, yes. Alfred book about football I saw was perverse yes but he was playing in a charity game that I ordered annually I didn't order organised annually down at uh, my hometown and uh, he came down and he, he couldn't play but we couldn't get him out his hand-eye coordination was such as you know he's brilliant he took a wonderful catch in the outfield and then we decided to actually to make a lot of money for the charity we actually put him in goal and asked young, young children who worshipped him to come try and score past him. After 20 minutes, we had a field full of screaming, crying children because <laughs> he was so, so, he'd contested so hard, he wouldn't let the ball in the net. So we had to cancel the entire thing, give him a, a good lecture about, you know, come on, George, for God's sake, let it out, I can make some money, which he did very well. But it was an interesting insight into the really competitive mind of a, of a great athlete. Wouldn't be beaten. Wouldn't they would be beaten. not be beaten. And no game of that they ever played was done for fun. At so, all. so, hang on, so he, play, he, he was good at cricket, you couldn't get him out. Couldn't get him out. And he was a great goalkeeper. 
Uh, well, they, they were very small children. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I mean, well, let's get this in perspective. Uh, it's, yeah. just, it's just very interesting seeing you. But well, not not seeing you in a cricket top. That's <laughs> that's not surprising. But seeing George Best in cricket whites is not something uh, you you're altogether associate. Uh, but he was just, just a good natural athlete, and I mean, the kind of footballer he was, as great as he was, you know, he had all the all the stuff, the equipment you needed to be good at any sport, yeah. really. So this is. It, this is sort of uh, your contribution to the George Best story, sort of part two. As you say in this, you, you wrote uh, Best, uh, an intimate biography in 1975. That's right. Why did, why did you think that you wanted to sort of get, get back into this story? It was a kind of farewell note to, to a mate. I was in Australia when George died. Uh, I'd been not disassociated from him, but I'd, we drifted apart. He never wanted me to see him like he was, and I didn't want to see him like he was toward the end. Uh, it was a bit like that, and I was a bit like that too. But in the end, I felt when he when he died that I I actually should have gone to see him. That I, I should have spent time with him. I was in Australia, a long, long way away, and and I carried with me a kind of sense of guilt about it. And the only way that I could think out my way out of this guilt, this silly feeling I had, was to write about him and to recall the kind of friendship we had and. And we tried to be as frank as I possibly could, but never losing the sight of that, that he was one of the greatest athletes I ever had the pleasure and the gift of knowing. People might assume then that it was an easy book to write. No, it's difficult. Difficult because with George, you always had to balance that which you knew about him as an athlete and admire against the way that he lived as a man. And, and as a friend and a close friend of his, I mean, I saw his deterioration. And then I began to understand it. I thought in the beginning, like the rest of us in those days, it was the 60s and all that time, you know, were heavy drinkers, and we all were. The difference was I could give it up. George couldn't. He was an alcoholic. And it wasn't until too late that we understood that and began to understand all that that meant, that inevitably, from the first time he took a drink, he was he was going to die of it. Um, and and it's a it's a terrible thought. You don't want to think about it when you're young and enjoying yourself, but then later on you do, and then you, there's an associated guilt with it. I think of the part you played, but you shouldn't feel that way because there's nothing you can do to stop it. You write uh, in the early stages of the book about seeing his debut against mm. West Bromwich Albion. Yes. Can you just explain for people who who never saw him play yes. uh, quite what a magical moment it was it because it you it's almost like a, a moment of conversion you know yes. you see this you go oh wow this this is football yes I, I had almost the same when i saw ali box and i had the same when i saw federer play tennis that people carry with them some athletes a grace a, a balance a, a sense of being an aura if you like as soon as they walk on the field you can tell that they're kind of different I mean, that sounds a fairly romantic thing to say, but it's true. And I had that with George when he walked on the field. He was 17. He was thin as a toothpick, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, like a sort of baby carrot, you know, I and mean, all these guys around trying to kick the hell out of him. And he just displayed that wonderful presence of mind, that ability to sidestep, avoid, defeat, all that went on around him. The physicality of the game, it seemed to be beneath him. And and I just I knew I'd seen something very special, and I'd been a fan of football long enough to actually understand what was special. Now, as a Barnsley supporter, you couldn't expect me to actually be more philosophical than that. But nonetheless, I think when you see a great actor on screen or whatever it might be, you understand that you've seen something different. 
And I saw that in George. Can you equate him to, just with a current sensibility, can you equate him to Messi or Ronaldo or Pele? I mean, where, yes. where, I, where, where would you put him? It is always difficult, actually, comparing athletes. Because you have to think about the context of the time they played in. George played at a time in football in the 60s when two things were paramount. One was that the pitches were disgraceful. I mean, it was like Flanders Field, you know, the United ground or any ground at all. So it, it uh, prevented them from being fleet-footed and it allowed people like Chopper Harris to get in close and deliver the body blows. Uh, but So that was the one thing. The second thing was that they were not protected in those days as a modern footballer is. I mean, Chopper Harris would have lasted three minutes with today's referees and been sent off the field forever. So we have to look at that in context. Now, I've got no doubt that George Best would have been an even better player today. I wonder if Messi would actually be as good as he is now playing in George's era. That's the debate to be had. I think that's a great point. And you make that point in the book. Yeah. I, I want to talk to you about um, his relationship with Matt Busby. Yeah. Um, because I read, um, I interviewed um, Paddy Barkley on Radio 2 um, a year or so ago when he had his book out about Matt Busby. But you make a point that I'd not heard before. Um, because, of course, Matt Busby manages to build this team, the Busby Babes. Then there's, there's the tragedy of Munich. He then rebuilds this team and, and it culminates in the 68 Cup final, uh, European Cup fi- final. But you you make the point, like I said, that I'd, I'd not thought of before, that without Munich, there may not have been a best at Manchester United because Duncan Edwards was there and the, the, that plethora of talent that they yeah. had there that was wiped out in that well, in that playing ground. He'd have been in the team. There's nobody better in any position you care to mention that have found a position for him. But you're quite right. I mean, uh, Edwards is the irreplaceable driving force of that team. Busby knew that, and he spent the rest of his life hoping to God he'd find somebody. And he got this call from Ireland saying, I think I found a genius for one of his coaches, and he had. And from that point on, it's a very romantic story. Uh, And in many ways, you could argue, I suppose, because Matt's ambition was such that it overruled common sense. He knew that George was going wrong. He could see he wasn't daft. He'd been in football all his life. But the fact of the matter is he didn't want to believe that this was happening to the man who he knew could get him a, a European Cup. And of course, of course, George did that, not single-handedly, of course. In fact, the game he had was quite ordinary at Wembley, but he scored the goal. He was going to, as you, as you know, legend has, and it's true, he told me that he had this wonderful thought that when he broke clear of the defence, he'd go around the goalkeeper, put the ball on the line, kneel on his head, and head it into the net. <laughs> <laughs> but even he thought that might be a bit too grotesque, a bit too showbizy. Uh, but but, they, they, they could, but they, the time they were together, it was an extraordinary relationship. Matt argued... Uh, and told me that he thought from that point on, George went downhill fast. And I think possibly if you look at things, he's probably right. But it was a great romantic love story almost between two who adored football and came together and who actually depended very much on, on each other, Matt Moore and George and George on Matt. And I'd, I'd struggle to think of how Matt could have dealt with George any better because... Well, no, you can only... Actually, I mean, I think, again, this argument about different times comes into it. I think that in, in, if George had happened today and had gone to any big club, say, to, to Man City, with the coach they have there, they would have found out, and the staff there, they would have found out rather quickly, more quickly than, than we did, that there was something fundamentally wrong with George's makeup, that he was drinking too heavily. It wasn't just heavy drinking, it was something else. And I think they might have had control and charge of that. I don't know, I'm speculating now, but I think there were, the chances would have been better. Also, too, I mean, you, people forget that, you know, 
when George arrived, there had never been a sexy footballer like him before. I mean, he had 5,000 letters a week in the first year of his life playing at United from girls, you know, just that. As I say, in the book, the soprano section of, of, of the football crowd began there. I mean, it didn't exist before George existed. And, and he was a phenomenon, and he was a poster boy for all of that, for that rev- so, that social revolution, all of that he is designed and built for it. But what it wasn't designed for was a kind of uh, lifestyle and the kind of uh, lack of care that there was in those days for people like him. That that that, that cultural background uh, you you tackle in the book, and it and it does need saying again, maybe that England had just won the World Cup mm. uh, in '66. It was the swinging '60s. Mm. George was very much uh, part of that. Uh, uh, man had stepped foot on the moon and you talk about Manchester and you talk about Granada television and all that kind of cultural background is related to that kind of the soprano section and the screams that George got. Very much so. It was a fundamentally exciting time and and you don't understand really what it was about if you lived through it until you lived through it, if you happen to live through it. Uh, And and I did and, 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 you know, I I look back on it and I just think, gosh, it was extraordinary what happened. It really, it wasn't Carnaby Street, that was about frocks. This is about something else. It was about actors, it was about writing, it was about politics, it was about everything. And Granada Television played a huge part in that. I mean, there's never been a more politically inclined or vigorous uh, TV company before or since than Granada Television. People forget. You know, there are people who actually insisted that we could actually go to party conferences and then we could report about these things. It didn't happen before that. And Granada were very ballsy and very muscular about their approach toward all that. And they were designed brilliantly for that time of our lives. And, and we, you know, we were lucky to have them. I grew up in in the, in the northwest. No, you're not. I watched Granada. Yes, I absolutely would go <laughs> along with that. Um, I do want to talk to you about George. Best. We've sort of touched on this, but George Best, the player. Mm. You have a quote, which I'm, I'm just going to read, but by I, I would argue probably one of the finest sports writers around, Hugh McIlvan. Yes, without um, doubt. Uh, and his quote, which I'm, I'm just going to read in full, which is, it's the forward to your uh, to one of your chapters, which is with feet as sensitive as a pickpocket's hands, his control <laughs> of the ball under the most violent pressure was astonishing. The bewildering repertoire of feints and swerves and balance that would have made Isaac Newton decide he might as well have eaten the apple. <laughs> Outstanding. Of course it is. Absolutely. Let's, but but let, let, let's just celeb- celebrate that talent. That that he he was as we've sort of hinted at already. He was the uh, the blueprint for how future footballers would perform. They would w- be watching him and go. I want to do that. Yes, that's right. But I've never ever seen a footballer before or since who had the full range of his gifts. Um, Busby said, and so did Paddy Crown, the two guys who you know knew a bit about the game, that when I asked them, the two of them, to back up my justification of saying that he was the greatest footballer I ever saw, they said, we believe that. And I said, well, why do you believe that? And they said, because he's the only player we've seen who could play in every position in outfield and be better than anybody else in the books. Now, that is an extraordinary statement to make. In other words, his best winger, either wing, his best centre forward, his best midfield, his best creative, his best defensive. Come on. I mean, who can you say that about? Of any of the players, never mind this modern generation, of that time either. Tommy Finney was possibly the next one. Uh, Bill Shanklin used to say Tommy Finney could play better in his overcoat than most people. <laughs> but nonetheless, he didn't have the defensive capability that George had, nor the, 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 the kind of, not guts, it wasn't guts, it was something else about George. He had this extraordinary 
it was almost a de- desperate ambition to, to be to be good in every position, to prove he was that kind of footballer, could play anywhere and beat anybody. And that's what you don't see. And, and, and why would you see it? It's such a wondrous thing to say about somebody that, you know, I, I'm guilty. I can see young people when I talk to them about it, so they see their eyes rolling up, oh, God, he's up again. <laughs> but they didn't see it, and I saw it, and I'm there to tell them that it was true. Was he a joyful player? Did, yes. he, did he take pleasure mm. in what he was doing? He, take, he took pleasure in, in not demeaning of the opposition, but in fact now and again taking the mickey out of them. He liked doing that. And when you think of some of the people he played against and took the mickey out of him, he was a very brave man indeed. I mean, that was another thing about George. He had great courage and great physical. He wasn't much on him. You kicked him, you got kicked back. I mean, that was the thing about George. He wasn't the complete sort of mellowed artist reclining on a chair somewhere. He was a you know biggest biggest participant at a time when football was a very vigorous game indeed. A lot of skullduggery going on. But he was I mean, the thing about George is there was something I don't know. It was the grace he played with. It was the effortless control he had of the ball. It was the the way the speed of his thought and reaction. And he was he was just remarkable. And you knew once you'd seen him that you were not likely to see that again. And I I went through my life looking for it. I never found him. That's for sure. Uh, we're talking to Sir Michael Parkinson about his book George Best, a memoir, and we'll continue in just a moment. Uh, it's Books of the Year. So Michael Parkinson is here. George Best, a memoir. Uh, you'll see it in the shops. It has, as we mentioned earlier, a very fetching picture uh, picture of uh, Michael and George on the front in their cricketing whites. You you say, Michael, uh, in the book, this book is a family affair and mm. there's a chapter written by uh, by oh, your son. Nice. And, it, and it gives some very interesting <laughs> insights into the kind of person uh, that George was mm. and the trips that he made to your house and mm. playing football on the grass. Can you just ex- explain a bit how that came well, about? Well, George often got into trouble, as you know, with various people, girls or media or managers or whatever it might be. And whenever he felt kind of crowded out in Manchester, he'd call us and he'd come down and spend time with us down my house in Bray. And he would come down and the first thing he would do is he had a, he used to have a big net of balls. He'd thrown through the door and that was it. And so that meant that what, what was going to happen from that point on was that me, Mary, myself, and any adult who crossed his path was ignored and he'd go and play football with my boys. I had three boys. And they were going, of course, they had a wonderful time, three boys and a cat. And the name of the game was getting the ball off George Best. <laughs> which, again, because it was... <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Well, uh, precisely. I mean, they, they would spend days chasing around. <laughs> and he never gave in. He never made it easy for them at all. But he enjoyed it. He loved it and became part of the family. And Michael has written a lovely sort of uh, uh, recall of this, in which it's probably true, you know, George, in those days, was hugely famous, and he went to school on the Monday after George had been down the weekend and the teachers had played this game. Let's tell us children where you did this weekend. And we went to the Zoom, and we went to the pictures and all that, and then Microsoft said, I played football with George Best, and he told us he was a fibber to sit down. And, and, and this is a nun who's in charge of the class, yeah. And she gave him detention. And, <laughs> And he uh, he carried this grudge with him for a long time. But when George next came down, he said to George, he told him the story. So George said, give him that football. And he, took, he sat, wrote to this nun saying, he did play football with me, so he'll say sorry. And he handed it to the nun. And he says that she thinks she's, he thinks that she blushed. I don't know about that, but anyway, but it was, but it was. A what schoolboy wouldn't go to school <laughs> saying they'd be playing football with <laughs> George? Of course, but it was, a, yeah. I mean, and, and he. He, he was, he was, he just wanted to get away from things, I suppose. And I, 
when he first came down, I used to think I'd beholden on me to actually invite around several of my famous friends or whatever, just, you know, for him. And, and he just didn't bother. He just didn't bother at all. They bring their children. And as soon as that happened, it was a game of football. All the kids versus George Best and the famous people were not in his range. But one of the interesting points that your son makes in that chapter is that that, that very easy relationship that he had with your sons when they were young was lost. Mm. And as they grew up, that affinity sort of disappeared. Mm. George, George was very sensitive about the um, fact that as he got older and... Um, his behaviour became more non disreputable, more challenging in a, in a way to, to his friends because he, he he was a drunk. Um, then he there were certain people he didn't want to him to uh, didn't want to see him like that. Uh, that's the point. So Michael and my sons were going to a pub in Chelsea and they'd be there and I'd wave to him and all uh, that and uh, thumbs up and then he would disappear. He would leave. Um, and as I said earlier, that you know. Uh, he and I had not a falling out at all. We just gently, mutually agreed to separate when he was actually at his worst, in a sense, I suppose. So I didn't want to seem like that, and he didn't want me to seem like that. But the price you pay for that is you feel that yourself that you should have got to put the arm around him or something. You know? your, son, you, your son's observation is that he never really grew up uh, well, and, that, and that his personality was... Was shaped by fan worship before he had a chance to be who he could have been. I think Michael might be partly right in that, but I also think there was a fundamental flaw in George, which is the fact that you know, if if drunkenness, if if uh, uh, I mean, his mother was an alcoholic, so and it's been proven, I think, that there is a genetic disposition, if you like. And if you look at the uh, photograph on the back of that book, you can't deny that Mrs. Best made a big contribution to the way that George looked. Um, so maybe it could be that he inherited that from, from his mum. And I think that people, when that happens, I mean, I think it's almost, it's a different proposition when try to explain what drunkenness is, what alcoholism is. It's a different thing altogether. And, and I just, you know, we all understood that far too late with George. We all tried various cures and various ways with him and... You know, I mean, people would ring me up and say, oh, I used to be an alcoholic, I, you know, I'll take him out for lunch and he'd come back and the guy would be totally pissed and George wouldn't be. You know, I mean, so <laughs> there's some kind of competition to actually yeah. see who drank the most in the sense. But it, it was a tragedy and, um, and and there was a weakness in him. There was a there was a flaw in that makeup of that wonderful player. As a human being, he found it difficult. But you know, the point you have to remember about this is that we're already now at our age, in our age, we're used to celebrity, we're used to the way that it operates, we're used to the way that people react to it. In those, it wasn't the same. You know, we're talking about the Beatles just arriving, not having been there for 40 years and all the brouhaha that they created. He was part of that. He was the fifth Beatle in that sense, and he was. So an awful lot was happening to him which had, was unprecedented. And I think we have to take that into account too. When did when did you realise that he didn't want to be saved, didn't want to be made better? Uh, there wasn't anything said. Uh, I think it was just we both felt inclined, less and less inclined to sort of be together in a, in a way. We both didn't take the opportunities that we'd had before to, to, to be together. So it was just a drifting apart. It was like a kind of a bad marriage in in that sense, you know. Uh, but it wasn't distasteful in the sense that we ended up loathing each other. 
We didn't. We we ended up as mates. We were mates, which is why I felt guilty when 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 he died. I mean, I'd I'd not felt guilty. I'd have uh, felt bad about that because you know I thought, well, I should have been more sensitive to it. But I I wasn't. I, I, I we all felt. We tried our best to to help him. In the end, there's nothing we could do, and I think that's the truth. I think that's what shines through in this book is is the honesty uh, within it and uh, the fact that you you do say at some point could we have done more? The answer is a qualified yes. Yeah. We we, yeah. we often tried, but yeah. we were when you've got someone who is telling sidestepping every opportunity to change, then, then then it's very difficult. You're also very honest about about football back then. I am naturally suspicious of anyone who says that football was much better back in the day. And the reason for that is my grandfather played for Sheffield United in the 50s. What was his name? Uh, Mick Calori, you won't remember him. He was, a, he, was a, he was a decent footballer. He said the biggest cheer he ever got was when he missed a penalty at Anfield. So he was not, <laughs> he was not a great player. But the stories he would tell me about playing football in the 50s have put pay to any myths that people may try to build up of how football was much better back then. Um, the, the, the most famous, or the, the, the one that has stuck in my mind the most, is he was transferred to Doncaster Rovers with no say in the matter at all. He was basically summoned mm. to the chairman's office. Mm. The chairman didn't look mm. up from his papers mm. and said, you're going to Doncaster Rovers. Mm. And he was, well, my kids are at school. Um, my, what about the house? You're gone. You you have no say in this matter, no. and obviously th- that power has now shifted. But I, I I think it's absolutely important that when we talk about football back then, it is not. I, I know that everyone always brings up, oh, the footballers would go on the train with the, with the fans. They would be there on the buses. They would live in the same streets. But it, bluntly, they were being used by the owners of those clubs. Oh, the were. people who were doing best out of those out of football in the 1950s were the owners. No, oh, without a doubt, uh, you can make the same argument now, I suppose, as well. Uh, much more sophisticated way of doing things nowadays. All the school degree. But anyway, in those days, no, I don't say the football was better at all. What I do say is that the association between uh, fan and, and player was much more immediate and much more humorous in a sense because of that. Um, you talk about the way that footballers are treated. Uh, you can't believe this, but it's true that Danny Blanchard once played for Barnsley, my great hero. He came from Dentoran to Barnsley, and he built them into a very fine side, and he was a wonderful guy and all that. I got to know him then, all that bit. He's the first footballer I knew. I went to college. Anyway, uh, but Danny, when they decided to sell him, the manager or the uh, chairman of the club invited him to sit in the back of his car and drove him to Aston Villa and said, you sit in the back of the car while I go in. And he came back out and he said, I've sold you for 15,000 quid. Now, this is to a man who was maybe one of the best players that they said the Premier League or the first division of those had ever seen, a thoughtful man, a man who had great, could write beautifully about the game, treated like a serf, even worse, like, you know, an idiot. Uh, that's what happened in those days, of course. But what is lacking nowadays, what you had then, was that you're only separated, you weren't just separated from them by, by, a, by a concrete, low concrete fence. You were actually, you were more, today you're separated by money, by, by style, by everything, almost everything. There's no relationship at all. You look at the footballers on the field, you look at the people on the terrace, they don't, they're not from the same tribe, they're not from the same, the same era, they're, they're different people. In those days, when you looked on the field, you saw a Barnsley Miner, or you saw a Sheffield Steelworker, you saw your your relative, you know? And that was the difference. You could associate with them. They had the same accent as you did, wore the same clothes as you did, came from the same community. And that undeniably, that bond 
made for a folklore and for an atmosphere that's altogether different than now. You can't, it's, it's a different game altogether. It's totally gone. And I'm lucky that I sat through all of that, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, saw the changes irresistibly happen and didn't approve of an awful lot of them, let me tell you. But nonetheless, there is no doubt about it that technically speaking, from every other point of view, the football of today has got nothing to do with that lot I saw. They're different creatures. They're better athletes. They're better everything, you know, except that blood relationship that I had with the Barnsley players. Don't have that anymore. So what do you think when you see a player, if they've scored a goal, kiss the badge uh, <laughs> on their shirt? <laughs> well, I don't think on this programme I can actually explain properly how I feel. But you can say anything you want. Say, the joy of it being a podcast, a podcast, Michael, is that you can say anything yeah. you want. Well, they kiss my bum better. <laughs> Be yeah. Well, I mean, because I, I think most fans thinking, you're not fooling me. I mean, I'm glad you've scored that goal for my team, yeah. yes. but you'll be gone in a shot because yeah. if there's a better offer that comes yeah. in the next transfer window, then yeah. you'll be off. I mean, it is a wonderful spectacle today. I mean, you see a team like Man City playing at full tilt, you know, and you look at it, you think, that's wonderful. You see Juve and the way they defend and all that. You think, yeah, this is excellent, wonderful. But there's a heartbeat that's missing for certainly. But well, listen, I'm, I'm old now, so I'm, I'm going to say all these things. And, Sound like a boring old fat, but the part of the, the the point of the matter is that if you have lived through a, a history of the game, which I have from the forties to right the way through the present time, you do see the changes, and you try to, to disassociate yourself from them and try to take an objective view. But then again, it's not about an objective view; it's about a passion. It's about something you feel. It's about poetry. It's about all those things that are different now than then. Yeah, and 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 one of them. I mean, you mentioned Barnsley, you mentioned Danny Blanchfield, and I love that section in the book, that kind of evocation of a lost era. Mm. Um, I'm a Spurs fan, so you know Danny Blanchfield was obviously a huge, huge transformed your side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, absolutely. Guy, yeah. But that whole section about quite what an extraordinary player he was, and then as you, that story of just being sold to Villa, yeah, like, like your granddad, yeah. just being flogged. It's like it is serfdom. It's goods and chattels. <laughs> it's absolutely appalling. You know, and, and 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 he had a wonderful sense of humour. And he told me that wonderful story about facing up to this guy called Skinner Normanton, who I didn't invent. He was a, a halfback with bars. He, Sounds uh, like a Monty Python. Yeah. Well, I know exactly. And Skinner, I've got a great name. He used to he used to work down the down the pit with my dad, and my dad was walking down the pit lane one day to Grimethorpe Pit with his dad, and said uh, said my father had read something. I used to write about Skinner in the Sunday Times. And he said, oh, I'll test this out with his dad. He said, uh, do, do, is your Skinner all right? And he said, aye. He said, why do you ask? He said, well, is he reading out in, in Sunday Times about what my son's writing about him? Ah, he said, don't worry about that. He can't read. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not funny in the sense that it's, it's, like, it's like you make it up, but you don't make that stuff up because that was the period of time then. It was likely that maybe he didn't read. I don't know. Or I don't know. His dad was probably just being being funny. But Skinner was also the guy who Danny told me about, who played his first uh, practice game for Barnsley, uh, and uh, he was standing there not knowing anybody, and feeling uh, totally out of place. And he got the ball at his feet, and he's looking up, and he sees this blonde-headed guy built like a sort of cruiserweight coming towards him. Right? And Danny's thinking, I was like, give him that one, or give him that one, the right shoulder, dip my shoulder, and that sort of thing. And the next thing I knew, I was on the floor and I had stud marks right the way up my front. So, all the way <laughs> so it was my introduction to Skinner Norman. I thought, I'm going to enjoy this. <laughs> 
Did you enjoy the? Did you enjoy writing? You said it's, it was a difficult book, Michael. But did you enjoy this and think actually because it was just great to read a new book by Michael Parkinson? Do you, do you have other plans to? Uh, I've got a, a plan. I'm, I can't actually disassociate my son from from this book either, Michael who runs my production company, actually writes very well. He's a very good writer. So when I ask him for research, I look at it and I think, I can't write better than that. <laughs> Shove it in the book. But, I mean, he's a very perceptive writer, a good writer too. So I enjoyed that part of it. I enjoyed seeing him develop too as a as somebody who can write write books and things. That's always, it's always a great gift to a parent. Um, Sorry, what was the question? No, I was Did wondering I, if, you, I, if you feel as though you've got another book in you. Oh, I see. I... I I think the book I've always wanted to write, but I've shifted any kind of thought because it's going to be too difficult. I wanted to write a book about my early life in the pit village before I became famous or whatever, before I left home, really, before I went to a national service. Um, because it was a very rich time then. It was affected me greatly. And I was very lucky in that I had great parents and I lived in a mining community which was very safe and sound and gathered itself around you, you know, and I went through a period of turbulence there with strikes and lockouts and all that and I remember our house being picketed once because my father was a, a deputy which was a foreman down the pit. He took me down the pit when I was a young man and pranked me to death and that's what he intended to do. Um, so in a sense it was a tribute. People assume that if you talking about being brought up in a mining community, that somehow that was deprivation. It wasn't at all. I mean, I find quite the opposite because what you had there was a solidarity, which meant that you were never frightened, you never locked the door. It's perfectly true, you didn't. I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but you didn't do that. It didn't happen. And where you walk the streets safely and where the policeman, just one policeman, could control 25,000 people at Barnsley Football Club easily, You'd point like that and then do his finger and you'd walk out and he'd hit you with his cape as he got you out of the side to the crowd. Big one at the back of the head. Don't come back next week. <laughs> but it was simpler. It was nicer. It was funnier. And then we had musical and all those things that I loved, people who made me laugh and all that. So it was a very, very privileged childhood. And I grew up without fear, really, of, of going out in that wide, wide world. And, and I know it sounds awfully complacent, but it's true. And I never worried about about making a, having a living or my lack of education or whatever. I just got on and did it. You know, went into journalism and thank God, I mean, that you didn't need to, an education. All that thing, but my background policed and drove and fueled all that. And that's what I want to remember and pay tribute to. Uh, and if I can do it or not, I don't know. Well. Uh, if the book is half as interesting as that answer to the question, yeah, then goodness, can we encourage you to write it? Because <laughs> that sounds fascinating. Thank you. Uh, Michael Parkinson's book is George Best, a memoir. Uh, Michael, thank you very much. My pleasure. I enjoyed that. Thank you. So thanks to Michael Parkinson for coming into uh, our studio. Um, we played, we serenaded him while he was waiting to come in with some jazz music. Over oh, yes. Our very expensive speakers. And he didn't, it turns out he didn't like it. Oh, dear. Oh, right. It's the wrong, wrong kind of jazz. Misjudgment uh, from us, though. I think. Now, the Q&A with Michael Parkinson will come out uh, in a few days' time. Well, it'll probably come out in a few weeks' time. So what we're yeah. doing is we're, we're giving you all the books because it's a good thing to do before Christmas. And then in that kind of lull, yes. that interminable period between Christmas and oh, New Year. Oh, when the family's around. Oh. And no one's gone back to work and the kids are still... Um, <laughs> we're going to do all the Q&As that are going yeah. to turn up there. Next from us will be a chat with Roger Daltrey. 
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.